Now that I'm a parent, I find it interesting to observe how children understand and relate to their own parents. When they're born, they hardly know you exist, but even after a few short months, they can recognize you, your voice, your smile, your presence. They start to know you, and after a year or so, those first words come out, and they're usually, what, mama or dada, and they start to understand that you are different than everyone else. You are their parent. And with that understanding comes a recognition of your authority. They start to realize more and more you are their authority in life. And where does this authority stem from in the mind of a child? Well, I'm sure size has something to do with it. I imagine they think, they're, here are two people who are bigger than me and stronger than me, and I'm sure there's some innate intimidation factor that goes through their mind that translates into some perceived authority. You know, most prison wardens, for example, they're huge guys. They're like bodybuilders, and that makes perfect sense because that's a world where size translates into authority. Kids also start to realize that their lives depend on their parents. Food, water, shelter, clothing all come from their parents. They, they can't provide for themselves. You are their complete and total provider. And that just by nature translates into authority. And as they get even older, they start to understand the idea of relation. Other adults are bigger than them. Other adults can provide for them, but only you are their parent. They came from you. In a human sense, you are their creators. And that, just by nature, gives you a great authority over them. And you should listen to them far above all others. But of course, what happens over time? What do all children do, even at a young age? They rebel against that authority. They fight the authority of their parents. This is especially feared in the teenage years. Because at that point, their parents aren't necessarily larger anymore, so the intimidation factor is gone. They're not so reliant on their parents. <clears throat> excuse me. If they had to, they think to themselves, I, I could survive on my own. If I really had to, I could make it. And they have a stronger sense of themselves as individuals, so there's less of this importance on being related, that you're their parent. It doesn't really matter as much anymore. They're their own person. And all this contributes to an increasing attitude of rebellion. They have their own will, their own desires now, and they're thinking, why should I listen to my parents? Why should they tell me what to do? And keep in mind, though, such rebellion is not confined just to the teenage years. Rebellion against authority begins as soon as they learn about authority. You don't have to teach a toddler to disobey. It becomes quite natural. Even if you tell them something that's good for them, they still have this inherent desire to break the rules. You tell your kid, hey, there's a candle in the room. Don't play with the candle. It's dangerous. Just leave it be. And immediately, what's the first thought that goes through their mind? I must go play with the candle. The candle, it could have been burning there all day, and they just paid no attention to it. But now that you've told them not to touch it, there's this drive inside. They just have to go touch it. They want to touch it. They're just little rebels, packaged in diapers. <laughs> in rebellion, it's one of the most natural things children can do. It doesn't make it okay, but it's merely a reflection of our fallen nature. We have a fallen nature, and now we're rebels at birth. And just think of the fall in Genesis 3. In many senses, Adam and Eve were like the children of God, he their father, and they understood his authority in the same manner. God was bigger than them. 
God provided for them. God created them. So they recognized his authority over their lives. He had the right to tell them what to do. But through Satan's tempting, they came to rebel against that perfect authority and they started to think, you know, I I think I do know better. I should be the master of my own fate. I should make my own decisions, do what I want to do. And so Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They rebelled against his authority. And that's the definition of sin. And you all know the consequences of that rebellion. All humanity was cursed and plunged into sin cut off from God, and now we all inherit that same fallen nature. And that includes our bent to rebel against authority. This is why you never have to teach your kids to disobey or rebel. It's very natural, and it's no different for adults. It doesn't go away after the teenage years. We're all still rebels at heart. All people sin, which is to say all people continue to rebel against their Heavenly Father's authority. Fallen man doesn't want God telling him what to do. He doesn't want anyone else ruling over his or her life. He wants to call his own shots, do what he wants to do. And so many people cast off God's authority. They live how they want to live, even if that includes sin. Many even deny God's existence because they don't want to be forced to recognize some other supreme authority in life. They're their own authority. And this rebellion certainly characterizes the world. But this rebellion also characterizes some very religious people. Yes, rebellion is very prominent among the religious hypocrite. This is the person who on the outside claims to love God and his law. They don't deny God. They believe in him. They obey him. They submit to his authority. They're not like the heathen who says there's no God. They, they believe in God and they seek to keep all of his commands. They're very diligent. They appear very holy on the outside. But on the inside, they're total rebels. Their hearts don't belong to God. On the inside, they're still living for self. They just found a way to use religion to magnify the self. They may be doing all the right things on the outside, but for all the wrong reasons, and God doesn't care about that. It's just a different form of rebellion, an an internal rebellion of the heart, which is just as bad, if not worse. If you want an example of what this looks like, well, we're going to find one today from Mark's gospel, really the chief example of such internal rebellion against God's authority. It's found in Mark chapter 11. Open your Bibles there now. We're going to be finishing this chapter this morning as we're going through verse by verse. Go to the end of Mark chapter 11. And there we observe the religious leaders of Israel who were literally the holiest people around on the outside. But on the inside, they were the unholiest people around. No one is more rebellious than them in the heart. This is most evidenced by their refusal to accept Jesus as the Christ. I mean, they saw all of his signs and wonders, his teaching. They saw his sinlessness, his handling of the word. But they refused to accept him as the Messiah because that would mean the end of their power and their reign, their authority. They didn't want to give up their authority just to follow Messiah. They didn't want to give up living for self. So they rejected him even to the point of killing him. 
And that will happen shortly as our text takes place just a few days away from the crucifixion, which we'll see a little bit later. But here, though, near the end, we witness the final assault by all the religious leaders to take Jesus down by conventional methods. From the end of Mark 11 through the end of chapter 12, we just, we just watch as group after group comes up to Jesus as he's teaching in the temple and tries to trap him, catch him in some saying to discredit him and to destroy his popularity with the people. They're trying to turn the people against him. Now, of course, they fail every time. And so by the end of the week, they're forced to resort to unconventional methods to take Jesus down, namely the Romans. And again, we'll see that later. But first, though, what comes into focus is the issue of authority. Their first frontal authority, uh, rather, first frontal assault on Jesus is over the issue of authority, his authority. Mark 11, 27 through 33, we really watched Jesus and the religious leaders verbally spar. It's like a battle of wits over the issue of authority. Now, you're not going to be surprised by who wins the battle. But it's still a really important passage because here we, we witness the religious authority of these leaders just be demolished. They, they have no authority. Meanwhile, the, the authority of Christ as Lord is upheld. And we even catch a glimpse into what happens to those who deny and reject Christ's authority. And in short, it's not a safe thing to do. But even more so, this text it really confronts us with an important question. Do you recognize the authority of Jesus? Or do you likewise rebel? What happens to those who recognize him? And what happens to those who rebel against him? We're going to find that out as well. Our goal is simple. We're just going to make our way through Mark 11, 27-33. We're going to read as we go, let the story unfold before us. Let's watch and let's see what becomes of this battle for authority. I'll give you an outline just to follow along. Number one, let's observe the clerical rivals. The clerical rivals. Let's start from verse 27. It says, They came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and elders came to him. You can stop there. Verse 27 begins with Jesus entering Jerusalem. We're in day three again of his final week. And he goes into town. He's not going there to do sightseeing. He goes straight to the temple, like always, to do some teaching and ministry. The temple complex was massive. We're talking like 30 acres. And Jesus would spend time walking through the outer courtyards like many rabbis, and he would be teaching as he went. Only on this occasion, he was stopped by this confrontation of these religious leaders or clerical rivals. Verse 27 says that as he was walking in the temple, he was approached by who? The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Three distinct groups. You could say, in a way, three branches of Israel's religious leadership. These three groups did not always see eye to eye, but they certainly came together in their opposition of Jesus. Now we're going to see these clerical rivals come back in verse in chapter 12 again and again. But let me just give you a quick intro into who these people are 
just so you know now. Starts off with the chief priest. Chief priest was the highest religious office in Judaism. He's at the very top of the religious food chain. In a way, you can think of him like their pope. He's at the top. The highest authority and the, and the leading member of the Sanhedrin, which that's like their supreme court, their highest ruling body. Now, in the Old Testament, the chief priest, he was supposed to rule for life. But things had changed by now. Ever since Hellenistic kings came into power, they started appointing and removing chief priests just as political favors. And so that's why we see multiple chief priests alive during the time of Christ. Do the names Annas and Caiaphas ring a bell? Probably heard, the, heard those names before. There were two, at least, chief priests operating during the time of Christ. Annas was no longer priest. He had been removed. But he still had a lot of power and influence. So much so, his son-in-law was Caiaphas, who was the current chief priest. And together, they wielded a lot of authority. And most likely, we see Annas and Caiaphas in this little group right now that is confronting Jesus going to question his authority. So first we have uh, chief priests. Second on the list are the scribes. Now we've seen these guys a lot before. We'll see them again in chapter 12. But these were the keepers and the interpreters of the Jewish law. They were the students, the scholars, the experts on all things Jewish. In Judaism at the time, it, it didn't really matter so much what the law said. It mattered what the scribes said the law said. They were the the masters over the interpretation of Scripture. And what they said just goes. That's it. Most of the scribes were also Pharisees. You've heard of them before, of course. These were the super religious Jews who sought to actually keep the law to the degree that the scribes taught it. And so they went to extreme measures to try and observe every last little command And so that gave them just this really perceived holiness and that gave them authority and power over the people. So we've got the scribes. Last on the list are the elders. Every Jewish town had ruling elders. These were like the aristocrats, the the ruling body. Most of the elders, at least in Jerusalem, were also Sadducees. I'm sure you've heard of them as well. We'll see them again in chapter 12. But they were, these guys, they were far less zealous about keeping the law than the Pharisees. They're really not that serious about, you don't have to get all crazy about trying to keep the law. So they, they didn't go to the extremes to keep every single command. Being wealthy, being rulers, they were far more liberal when it came to applying God's law. And also, a lot friendlier with the Romans. But anyway, this, that's just a little snapshot of who these three groups are that approach Jesus, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. Together, members of these three groups would form the Sanhedrin, which I mentioned earlier, that's their ruling body, the top organization or committee. It was led by the chief priests. There are 71 members, and they called the shots. Especially in Jerusalem, they called all the shots. They made all the big decisions. And so we're seeing representatives of the Sanhedrin come to Jesus now. Now, it's not surprising. We're not at all surprised to see the chief priests and the scribes and the elders confront Jesus. Why not? Because this is, these are the exact three groups that Jesus himself precisely predicted would oppose him in Jerusalem and even kill him. 
You remember back Mark chapter 8, verse 31? It says, long before this, and he predicts, and he says to his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So we're, we're not surprised. When the disciples first heard that back then, they were shocked. It's like if Jesus came today and said to a bunch of Catholics he would be rejected and killed by the Pope, the Cardinals, and all the bishops. He said they'd be so shocked. And how could these religious leaders, supposedly, how could these top guys not only miss the Messiah, but murder the Messiah? But as we learned the past few weeks from Christ cursing the fig tree, Israel's religion was bankrupt. These religious authorities were all just, just hypocrites. They, they looked shiny on the outside, but inside they were dead, lifeless, fruitless. They did not actually know God or serve God. They, they served themselves. And quickly approaching was the time of their judgment. And in the text we have before us today, really their, their self-serving nature and their stubborn pride are just put on display so as to remove all doubt as to just how corrupt and phony these guys are. I mean, everyone thinks they're the, the holiest guys around, the closest to God, but they're really the furthest from God, and that becomes clear as we continue. Well, first, we're introduced to the clerical rivals. Secondly, we see what they're up to. Number two, the clever ruse. Clever ruse, or like trap, or that they're springing for Jesus. Look at verse 28. These three groups come up to him, and in verse 28, they begin saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? So these clerical rivals of Jesus, they approach him in the temple on this day and they take issue over his authority. And what gives Jesus the right, the privilege to barge into their temple and act like he owns the place? And people, they call Jesus a rabbi, but the Sanhedrin, they never said that. They never authorized that. They never confirmed that. So where is he getting this authority? It's not from them. They never vouched for Jesus or affirmed him. Just the opposite. So now they're approaching Jesus. They're questioning him, interrogating him. It's like, where, where's your authority to do these things? It's like a crime drama. You've got police detectives are investiga- investigating some murder scene. And this white van rolls up and these guys in suits jump out. They start taking over. They push the detectives out. They're just messing with the scene. And, you know, the chief, pre- the chief you know, detective, he's always like, hey, who do you think you are? What gives you the authority to barge in here and take over? And the guys in suits, they pull out their badge, and it's, you know, FBI. And they actually have authority. They have federal authority. They, they do have the right to barge in and take over. And here, the Sanhedrin, it's like they want to see Christ's badge. Where do you come from? Who gives you this authority to do these things? And when they say these things, do you know specifically what they're referring to? What did Jesus do in the temple the day before? You remember? Look, if you're in Mark 11, look back at verse 15. This is day two of his final week. He goes to Jerusalem and verse 15. 
Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves and so on. You know, we don't need to rehash this, but long story short, Jesus seriously interfered with temple operations. For that morning, he put a stop to most of the commerce going on in the court of the Gentiles. And that meant lost revenue for the chief priests. He's also like the CEO of the temple. They had really turned temple operations into a business. They profited from selling, the selling of sacrificial animals right there on temple grounds and, and other business ventures. And so Jesus was hurting their bottom line and making them look bad. So that's not going to fly. So here we are. It's the next day, and here are representatives of the Sanhedrin wanting to know by what authority Jesus is doing these things and thinks he can get away with it. But I want you to realize this. So they're asking him about authority, but here's the thing. They already know the answer to the question. They already know. They know that Jesus claims divine authority. They know that. That he claims to be equal to God. That his authority is that of God the Father's. They know this because they've heard Jesus say it many times before. For example, John chapter 5, verse 18 says, For this reason the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he, Jesus, was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Also in John chapter 10, which doesn't take place that long ago, Jesus, he's in Jerusalem before the Passover, and these, these leaders, they come up to him, they say, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. And he says back, John 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. And it says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And that's just a sampling. Many times Jesus said he, he came from the Father. He claimed this equality with God. And his authority comes from God himself. So look, they, they know this. They know the answer. They've heard him say it before. He claims divine authority. So if they know that, why are they asking? Because they're trying to kill him. They're trying to trap him. Right now, though, it's kind of hard because the people in the in city, are, they're still hanging off of every last word of Christ. So they need to find some way to turn the people against him. And so if, if only they could catch him claiming divine authority again, saying he came from God again, they could spin that into blasphemy right then and there and, and get him. So this is, not, this is not a simple question that they're asking. This is a trap. It's a, a clever ruse. Look back at verse 18 of Mark 11. You know, after he cleansed the temple, what was their reaction, these leaders? It says the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Surely that night the Sanhedrin met and they brainstormed, okay, how are we going to deal with Jesus? How do we get rid of him? He's got to go. What do we do? And so on the next day, day three, why do you think we see assault after assault come on Jesus 
He's sitting, he's teaching, and they just come one by one to try and trap him, try and take him down. That's what's going on in our passage as well. They're just looking for a way to get Jesus out of the way. Of course, Jesus never falls for the trap. He always turns it on them. So that's what we see next, him turning the tables. Number three, the cunning response. Thirdly, let's, let's witness the cunning response of Jesus. It's in verse 29. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus says, hey, before I tell you where my authority comes from, you just want you to tell me one thing. He says, verse 30, what was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. He's going to first make them pass judgment on John's authority. Now John, John the Baptist, is a huge figure, extremely popular. Even after his death, thousands, tens of thousands of Jews went out to see John preach and baptize in the wilderness. And the majority believed he was a true prophet, that he was sent by God. But why does Jesus make them evaluate the ministry of John? Well, because John was a very polarizing figure. Early on, even before Jesus came on the scene, John was preaching and teaching and baptizing. He had a ministry of alignment where he was trying to realign the people back to the one true God through a ministry of repentance and baptism. He was preparing the way for the Messiah. But did you know this? Early on, the Sanhedrin sent a delegation to go investigate this guy, John. Like, what? who is this guy? What's he about? So they go up to John while he's preaching and baptizing, and it doesn't go so well. And Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 records John and his response when he sees them coming. Matthew 3, 7 says, But when John saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You see, John condemned the religious leaders just as much as Jesus did because of their huge hypocrisy. They never expressed true repentance or genuine worship from the heart. They just wanted to do one more thing to make them look good on the outside because everyone else was doing it. They're all about the externals, which means nothing to God if your heart is not true. And so John went on and said of them, Matthew 3.10, he said, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He was talking about them. And so needless to say, the ruling Jews, they hated John. They did not recognize his authority. And they were very happy to hear that he, when he was executed. But the problem is the people loved John. They did recognize his authority as a true prophet. And this is why Jesus brings John up. This is really a cunning response. He knows that by making them pass judgment on John... He's putting them between a, a rock and a hard place. He has neither option. It's going to work out so well for them. If you don't know what I mean, well, we'll see it next. Number four, let's look at their cautious rationale. Number four, the cautious rationale. See how they respond, verse 31. 
says, they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say, from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say, from men? For they were afraid of the people. For everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. So here we see in their mind their dilemma. Jesus asks, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Another way of saying, hey, was John a real prophet? Was he a true prophet? Did he really come from God? Did he really speak for God? Or was he just some wacko in the desert? Was he from God? Was he from men? Which one? However, both a yes and a no answer would put the religious leaders in a squeeze. If they said, yes, John has divine authority, John's baptism was from heaven, they would be immediately condemning themselves because they rejected John. See, back in John chapter 1, we also learn again of that delegation of the Sanhedrin that went to see John, see what he's all about. And so these Pharisees from Jerusalem come to John, they say, who are you? Are you the Messiah? John very much says, no, I am not the Messiah. And so they say to him, John 1, 22, well, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. And John says back, verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. John clearly identified himself, not with the Messiah, but with the forerunner to the Messiah. He came first to prepare the way for the Christ, and John identified Jesus as the Christ. A little bit later, John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me even though John was born first. But look, for these religious authorities, it's not as simple as them saying, yeah, John, John's a nice guy. We've got no problem with John. Sure, he, he came from heaven, whatever. It's not that simple. Because for them to admit that the baptism of John was from heaven was basically to admit that Jesus was the Christ. It was to admit that John was a real prophet, that he was the fulfillment of the forerunner, but that would make Jesus the fulfillment of the Messiah. But they rejected John, and they rejected Jesus, and so they can't admit that they're rejecting the forerunner and the Messiah. I mean, that, that's just not going to work. They can't admit that. They don't want to admit that. The bottom line, there's no chance that these Jews would ever admit that the baptism of John came from heaven. It would be self-damning because they rejected John and Jesus, which means they would have rejected God's own messengers. But at the same time, it's also not so easy to outright deny John and his authority and condemn him to say his baptism was from men. That's because everyone loved John. The people believed he was a real prophet. And remember, what happened to John? He was killed by the Romans. That made him a martyr. They loved him all the more because of that. So to speak poorly of John in the presence of this crowd, that's not safe business, and they know it. The religious leaders, they were in power, but they also knew that if the common people revolted enough, Rome would step in, they would strip them of their power, and they didn't want that. So they always walked this fine line between controlling the people, but then just not ticking them off. Just got to play them just right. 
And verse 32 says, clearly, they were afraid of the people. They did not want to speak against John because they were scared. In fact, Luke chapter 20, verse 6, the parallel says, they even feared that the people would stone them to death right then and there if they spoke against John. So that, that's enough. They were not going to say, John is from men. He's not a real prophet. So you see the dilemma, I trust. There's no good answer. They, they can't go either way. Denying John, affirming John, they're going to get into trouble either way. There's no good answer. There's no good options on the table. So what do they do? Well, like any good politician, verse 33, answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. They gave the perfect politically correct answer, safe. They don't want to incriminate themselves, but they don't also want to offend the crowd, so they plead the fifth. And notice these religious leaders, they're not worrying about what's right and what's wrong, what's true, what's false. They're just worrying about what's safe, what's unsafe. What answer is expedient and beneficial to our cause? Let's just, let's just go with that. They're, they're like politicians. But also, do you notice how disqualifying this answer is? These are the top religious leaders of Israel. They're all Sanhedrin members. They are supposed to be the final authority on all religious matters. They should be able to make this judgment call. If anybody... They should be able to figure out, is John from heaven? Is John from man? But their answer just exposes them as complete phonies. They're just phonies. It shows their true nature. They're more concerned with serving themselves than serving the truth. And really, doesn't it disqualify them from passing judgment on Christ's authority? If they can't even discern John's authority, where it came from, who are they to judge Christ's authority and where it comes from? The religious leaders are cautious in their rationale, but this merely masks their pride, their hypocrisy, and it unmasks them as phonies. They refuse to answer Jesus his question, so finally, he refuses to answer their question. So we finish with number five, the condemning refusal. Lastly, number five, the condemning refusal. Finishing verse 33, and Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus will not fall for their trap. He knows what they're trying to do, but in just brilliance, he beats them at their own game. So at the end of this first battle, you could say Jesus won, religious leaders zero. And there will be three more battles like this on day three in Mark chapter 12. And you can probably guess the final score. It's not really safe to go up against Jesus. But for now, Jesus refuses to cast any more pearls before swine. He has demonstrated to them countless times his authority. They had seen the light, but they had rejected it. They hardened their hearts against him. So at this point, they would receive no more revelation, but only condemnation. It's the same as Jesus said of Jerusalem in general on day one during the triumphal entry, he approached the city and what did he say? Luke 19.42 If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. No more revelation. You've rejected. Now it's just condemnation. Realize 
these religious leaders, they heard Jesus teach. They saw how he handled the word. They witnessed his miracles. They looked on as he worked wonders. He did the impossible. So if their rejection of him, it's, it's not an intellectual issue. It's not because they don't have enough information. Rather, they reject him because of their stubborn will. Jesus was not the Messiah they wanted. He confronted their power and their pride. They were looking for a Messiah who would come and serve them, who would give them more power, who would affirm their authority, who would give them glory. But here comes Jesus and says, if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to deny self. They don't want to do that. And that's what they're living for. They, they, they just can't have that. They really wanted their will to be done on the inside, not God's will. So it's really no wonder that they refuse to recognize Christ's authority because that would mean the end of their authority. They're so desperately trying to hold on to their lives, dominion over their own lives, living for themselves. But like Jesus said, Mark 8.35, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. That's what they did. But whoever wishes or whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus confronted their power. He also confronted their pride. Jesus comes as the Savior. He's the only one who can forgive your sin debt against God through his sacrificial payment on the cross. But to receive this salvation, first, you've got to see your own sin. You've really got to own up to some things. You must come to the realization that you need a Savior because you're guilty before God and you can't fix things on your own. You're not good enough. You're not righteous enough. Nor I, nor anyone. All you can do is just throw up your hands before God and and plead, Lord, I am guilty. I am a sinner. I am lost and unclean and defiled. There's nothing I can do. But would you please just have mercy on me through Jesus? That's what saving faith looks like. And that takes just a real humility. You can't fake it. But these religious leaders, they had none of that humility. In pride, they did not believe they needed a Savior. They believed they were pretty good. They were good enough on their own. Sure, they they liked Messiah, but they didn't really need a Savior. I mean, they kept the law. They offered sacrifices. They followed the commands. They're, They're good to go, right? But they failed to see their sin and their hypocrisy, and instead they hardened their hearts. And instead of confessing Jesus in humility, they continued to rely on themselves in pride. And the same thing still happens today. The same thing still plays out today. In passages like this, we see Jesus turn people away. He's turning away from people. No more for you, no more revelation. He's shutting them down. That should stop us. And give us pause and make us wonder, are we like these religious leaders? Now, have you rejected Christ and his authority? A lot of people have. And for most, it's similarly not an intellectual issue. Most people reject Jesus because of their stubborn will. Yeah, I know, most people hide behind intellectual issues. But as you answer all of their objections, it becomes very clear. They don't want to believe because they don't want some other authority in their life. They want to be the authority. They don't want God or Jesus telling them what to do, 
and how to live. They don't want to give up their sins. They don't want to humble themselves. They don't want to think of themselves as guilty. They don't want a Savior. They certainly don't want a Lord. And therefore, they too harden their hearts against Him. And if this doesn't change by God's grace, they will be condemned. There will be no more revelation, only condemnation. But is that maybe you? The truth is clear. The facts are clear. Jesus has authority over all things. And although he doesn't answer it here, he answers elsewhere. We know where does his authority come from. It comes from God. He has divine authority. He is divine. Let me give you a sampling. Jesus displayed his power over pretty much everything. He displayed his authority over Scripture. Mark 1.22 says they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He displayed his authority over nature. Who else can say to the sea that's raging, hush, be still, and it listens? And the disciples reflect, who then is this that even the wind and the, and the sea obeys him? Jesus displayed his authority over Satan and demons. Back in Mark chapter 1, with just a word, he casts out a demon. And the people, they're, they're amazed and they say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. See, isn't that authority? You speak, people obey. And Jesus commands everything. He even has authority over sins. Mark chapter 2, Jesus tells this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. The scribes are there. They take issue. Because look, hey Jesus, no one has the authority to forgive sins but God alone. And that's one case where they're actually right. But to prove that Jesus has that much authority, the authority of God to forgive sins, he goes ahead and heals the man. Mark 2, 10 through 12. Jesus says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up his pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. And that's true because there's never been anyone like Jesus. No one's ever come that has God's authority, divine authority. Jesus has the full authority of God, and that even includes the authority to judge. John 5:22 and 27, Jesus said, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. If you reject the authority of Christ, he will use his authority to reject you and to judge you and to condemn you. But if you humble yourself, if you confess your sins before him, if you ask for mercy, if you believe in him, he will use his authority not to judge you but to save you. And he has that authority as well. John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. Jesus has the authority to deliver you from your sins and even from your ultimate enemy, death. 
For his authority even extends over death itself. And didn't he prove that by rising from the dead? John 10 verse 18, he said, No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. You get the picture? How much authority does Jesus have? Total, complete, supreme, divine. Matthew 28:18, he said, "All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth." The question then is, for you, do you recognize his authority? Do you submit to his authority? Do you then do what he says? You're happy to live as he calls you to live. It's not intellectually hard to see. You don't need more information. It really comes down to, will you submit your will to God's will? Your authority, domain, control over your own life to his. You offer up your life. You deny self, pick up your cross, and you follow him. Will you believe in him as Lord and Savior? Or do you love self too much? Do you love your sin too much? See, the scribes and the priests, they weren't the only ones to challenge and reject the authority of Jesus. People have been doing it ever since. All sorts of people still want to live for themselves. And that's what they get. As people turn away from Jesus, he turns away from them. They harden their hearts against him, so they are handed over to their sins and the consequences are left to themselves. But don't be mistaken, that doesn't mean they won't recognize his authority. See, Jesus has such absolute authority that in the end, everyone will bow the knee. In the end, everyone will recognize him and confess him as Lord, whether they want to or not. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, For this reason God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we are reminded, though, yet again, to be among those who confess him as Lord here and now, so that we may be with him then and forever. Don't, in pride, continue to rely on self and live for self, thinking you don't need him because that's what you'll get. You'll get yourself forever separated from God and his goodness. But instead, humbly bow the knee on this side of eternity. Follow him. He will use his supreme authority to give you new life and to bring you with him. Let's pray. Our Lord, we bow before you now, reflecting on what we've learned from Scripture this morning about about authority, your divine authority, and in the same manner, Christ's authority over all things. In our fallen self, we are God.
We want to be master of our own domain. We want supreme authority, even over others. We want to be served. We want to have power. We want to do what we want to do. But that's just a reflection of our fallen nature, our corruption now. And it's also denial of you and your authority because only you are supreme. We were created, intended to live for you, to find our satisfaction and joy in you. As we turn away from you and live for ourselves, there's nothing but sin and corruption, depression and, and guilt. But Lord, we thank you for your redemption that you loved us enough to send Christ to die, to redeem us, to, to change us, so that we no longer are living for ourselves and our own authority, but that by your grace we can come to deny self and, and live for you, to follow Christ truly, meaning we are living for his will now, not our own. We've heard that before many times, but we need that every day. We need to be reminded. That's, that's what this is about. That, that's what it means to be a, a Christian, a follower of Christ. But that is a blessed thing because your will is perfect. Your ways are right. You are true. And who else would we follow? And certainly not ourselves, Lord. Help us to continually divest ourselves from a love of self, puffing up ourselves with our own authority. May we just rely on you, all that you have given us, Christ is enough. Humble us to see our sin and our condition that we just every day confess our need for him. We need a savior. And so may we follow him with all of our hearts. Keep us free from any hypocrisy as we saw this morning. We don't want to be those lost and blind, counting on self. But the more we, we, we shrink and you grow, the more we, we, we lower ourselves and exalt you, and the better we will be in a position to see you for who you are. Well, Lord, we thank you for these truths. May they continue to guide and convict and encourage us to follow. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.